Good morning. This is Emily Marsh from MST3K, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. July 25th, 2023. I'm Steve Foder. And I'm the pirate Chip Hessenflow. Arr. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, Chip, but I am in a happy, happy place in the middle of July. You're in a happy place, Steve. You look like you're relaxed and, you know, only a few more weeks you'll be heading back to non-summer retirement <laughs> my retirement comes to an end in a couple more weeks but i have a couple of weeks in front of me of joyous joyous time of retirement vacation film at 11 Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. You, sir, made your choice. You decided Barbie and Oppenheimer opened on the same day, and you chose Oppenheimer as your movie this week. I went on Thursday night. I went to the opening show. It was a packed audience, and uh, it was a very mixed audience as far as ages are concerned. Obviously, right across from me was Barbie, a much younger demographic than that not children mm -hmm. but you know younger adults younger adults so oppenheimer is by christopher nolan it just was released it's probably the most anticipated film of the summer agreed certainly the build-up has been very good and what i mean by that anticipated i mean um the one that's most likely to probably challenge for our best movie of the year or at least thought to when we, when we started this movie this is an incredibly long film. This is three hours. And I do think that uh, it suffers because it is a little long. Okay. But Christopher Nolan has his palette. He has his storytelling techniques. And you're going to go through it with him. So, so this is um, a historical document. This is the story of the invention of the atomic bomb. Yeah, but it's not a documentary. Right. So this is about Oppenheimer um oppenheimer's education oppenheimer's uh putting together his team oppenheimer's building of the the atom bomb which ultimately was part of the ending of world war ii in, in the japan side um in addition to his questioning on what we should be doing with this new technology um and basically just recognizing its power because what you basically did by creating this type of bomb is created the power to destroy the world. Right. And um, you, you can see how it weighs on our characters. I, I do want to make sure I'm very clear on this. Robert Oppenheimer was a human and he had all the challenges of a human. So, he was incredibly smart, and there's one thing that you will quickly notice when watching this is his intellect, along with his colleagues' intellect, is just at a different level hmm. than, than most of us. And we can glean from that intellect. We can be part of it. We can marvel at it. But they are so smart, and they know each other's 
challenges. Oppenheimer recognized he wouldn't be good in a lab. Math was not his strong subject. Mm. Robert Oppenheimer recognized the theoretical parts of it, the parts that were going on in his mind were his special gift. And his team had the other parts of the gift. And they uh, built their uh, location out in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, they built a town for their families. And they spent time designing and building what would be the atom bomb. This is one of the biggest films of the year. This is, it, you said that the, the marketing that went into this is, has been huge. And then the, the fun with Barbie being on the other side of it, the cast of this one is pretty remarkable. You got Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer. And then you've got Killian Murphy who plays Oppenheimer, who's gone through a transformation in order to play this part. Yeah, he did eat, eat dinner with the cast, uh, and that's because you have to be very, very thin. So maybe there's something to be learned. We're Americans, Steve. Maybe we should be thin, too. There's also Kenneth Branagh, who's not an American. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I recommend this film, 70 out of 100. Is it going to win Best Picture? I, I don't think so. Um, I think that, that it's one of those films you go through, and you're happy you went through it. But you know, I couldn't imagine re-reviewing -re it. Okay. And like I said, when I say best film of the year, the story is important. It's more important than this film, um, and it, it's it's wonderful. I mean, but it's just not um, it's not life changing. Well, the story of the history is certainly life changing, but the movie not not as much of a, a life changer, huh? It's probably the highest film I've rated this year. Okay. I don't think it's going to win um, okay. film of the year. Interesting. I think that the action hit of the summer is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I really, really suggest that everybody go see this action thriller. Tom Cruise running everywhere and trying to solve an absolutely impossible task in this film. Brad Pitt eats, Tom Cruise runs. Yes. That, that's, those are tropes, Steve. They are tropes. And, no, they're and, and I'll agree. This is um, everything you would want in an action film. Mm -hmm. You know, John Wick Part 4 was very good at the beginning of the year. Um, what is wonderful about this is all the practical effects that are going into to making it incredibly exciting. And then you have this exciting story. That's that's nothing. I mean, it's, it's a James Bond film called Mission Impossible. Um, it is very much, um, you, you've seen so much of it before, but it's so well executed. It's and, it's effects. and it's everything that a Marvel movie isn't, you know, in front of a green screen mm -hmm. where it looks, you know, you're dealing with this fantastical world that you can't, you can't really relate to as well as what Tom Cruise gets to go through. It's the practical effects. It's the practical stunts. It is knowing full well that Tom Cruise is devoted to this character and showing us something special. This movie is something special. All of the characters are well-written. It is a great story in that action movie. All of the actors, Tom Cruise, Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, Haley Atwell is just stunning in this 
And you could compare it to the Indiana Jones film that came out just a, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And Indiana Jones film, you know, just pales in comparison to this film. Agreed. Did, did your presentation, I, I saw it opening night with a full audience. Did your presentation come with the director and Tom Cruise thanking you for coming to the theater? Yes, that was still on the reel. Uh, I think that that's a layover from the fact that this movie was filmed years ago and that's a part of the pandemic thanking people to coming back to the theater and i think that we're going to see less of that going forward uh, depending on what happens with the strike are you saying that the part two has already been they have not completed part two they are still working on filming part two and i think that we will not see a uh, welcome to the theater message on that movie interesting well, I, I, I watch enough of these films. I, I don't see many of those welcome uh, messages. I think it's something that Tom Cruise likes. And part of it is he wants people to go to the theater. He goes, it's meant to be shown on the big screen. Come see it with us. I had a, a packed audience. Everyone certainly was happy there. Like I said, I don't think this is going to win an award for Best Picture or um, it's going to uh, change your view of action movies. But what you're going to do is see an incredibly competent movie go on <laughs> with a lot of excitement with a lot of practical effects and you know what maybe if you drive a train you need to be prepared look for how to hang on to the side rails if it ever is hang if it's hanging down uh somewhere and again the indiana jones movie pales in comparison because there's certainly a similar scene very similar uh car scene in the indiana jones movie and this one really goes above and beyond i recommend mission impossible book it 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 Brings us to our book at our book of the week. It's the end of the month, and it's time for Pam Bador to join us and talk about some some books that make me smile. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, guys. Great to see you. Great to see you. This month, I brought a book that uh, came across my line of books, and I thought, oh boy, this book looks like something special. Pam is going to love this book, and Chip is going to tolerate this book. Well, I did my part. I totally love this book. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to bring it to my um, local book club. There's no doubt that I was thinking of you while I was reading The Ferryman by Justin Cronin. This was published in May, so this is brand new, hot off the presses, and this is the kind of book that Pam could really run with in her classes. 100% book written for me. I really, really liked uh, Justin Cronin's The Passage Trilogy. I was not at all surprised to see Stephen King is a big uh, supporter of this book. It reminds me of Stephen King in all the best ways. It's very long. It's a big book, but it also, um, it's just, you just get completely lost in it. Now, the New York Times review had this quote that I thought was so funny. The Ferryman is a 538-page book that clips along as effortlessly as you might scroll through a well-curated Instagram feed. Now, <laughs> how 2023 is that? That's, that's how you have to put things for people now is, you know, it's like Instagram. 
It's a book. But long. <laughs> but really, but really, really long. Really long. <laughs> this is a really long book. This is this is one thing that I, I told you when we started this. This is a this is a commitment. But the storytelling is so well done that it is a page turner, a 538 page <laughs> page turner. Or 20 hours if you like the audiobook. And um narrated by Scott Brick, who is a terrific narrator, also narrated The Passage and Michael Crichton and a million other things. Um, really, really terrific narration. It's interesting that you bring up Michael Crichton. This does have flavor of Stephen King in that yeah. it is a huge tome, but I don't know that the storytelling is very Stephen King-esque, but it's, it's kind of Michael Crichton. Mm -hmm. Esque. Yeah. It's got that that sciencey piece to it that you you are curious as to what is happening in this story. Yes, there's a lot of overlap, I would say, between these three writers. Hmm. I think Stephen King and Michael Crichton have a lot in common in their storytelling too. Chip, how did you feel about the ferryman? Well, I mean, I immediately thought of uh, the Greek mythology. When you pass away, you go on the boat. They put the coins over your eye, and you. They ferry you off to the underworld. So certainly this is, uh, you know, something that has some mythology evolved with it, too. Of course, that's where the ferryman, the, the mythology of that is there. And of course, I think of um, sticks and, and get stuck in rock and roll at that point. <laughs> so the story of the ferryman is this Proctor Bennett, who is working in the Department of Social Contracts, he is the one who is ferrying people to their next life. When they get retired, when their life is over, they move on to something called the nursery, where their bodies are renewed, their memories are wiped clean, and they come back as new people. Not at all like Doctor Who. I don't know why I like this story so much, Pam. <laughs> Exactly. exactly the idea of of reincarnation is is here we have this moment in the beginning of this story where he has to bring a person to the nursery because they have outlived their body and he has to forcefully bring this person to their next experience well and i think this has that very sort of classic dystopian feeling to it. So when I think of Proctor Bennett, which by the way, it's such a great name, right? That, like a it Proctor, is a great name. Right? It's someone who like, you know, watches the exam. Like it's dead, like that is the perfect name for a civil servant, which is how Proctor is presented. But it's kind of a classic dystopian situation where these people in Prospera, they get to basically live forever. But the cost of that is that they never have children. So when you come off the ferry, you're already 16 years old. And so it reminds me of Guy Montag in Fahrenheit 451, the person who's part of the system, or Bernard Marx in Brave New World, or Winston Smith in 1984. It's all of these really, really classic texts. And the person is part of the system, which feels like it's working well, but the person starts thinking, wait a minute, is the cost of this apparent utopia too much? Am I actually living in a dystopia? 
it's such a it's a it's a like retelling of that very very typical dystopian story and just the name prospera as the the name of (laughs) of this area is is significant to this vision of what who we are and what we are doing and and that's pretty great utopia dystopia and I am definitely not a Shakespeare scholar, and I was getting hit by Shakespeare references all over the place from my undergraduate 30 years ago. Um, so yeah, so <laughs> Prospero obviously is the guy in the Tempest who's right. on an island. Um, Trying also- to build a, a, a society, a utopia where he's not being not being successful. But of course, prosperous, right? There's this big class distinction Mm -hmm. and so instead of being called the aristocracy you know the prosperous people live on prospera so here's here's where we need to make a huge disclaimer because that all all of that story sounds great but there's something weird going on here there's something else going on and a lot of the first third of this book is is questioning the nature of reality and and this is where we need to sound the spoiler horn because i think that a lot of people will read this book first of all i think this is going to be a very popular book secondly i think that you don't want to know what the weird thing is well i i've turned down the lights i have a black light uh for my uh, space and i also have um the lava lamps going so it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome <laughs> oh when we turn to philosophy <laughs> and philosopher chip absolutely understands welcome to the hookah bar <laughs> So those of you who are interested in this book, please pick up this book. Those of you who think this sounds great and and trust Pam and and me and Chip and and let us tell you, this is a great book. You you want to read this book? Absolutely. You're going to want to experience it along with this book. It's a long book. If it was shorter, it'd be a beach read, but it isn't. Oh, that's exactly right, Chip. You're exactly right that it's it's got great pace but it does it does get big in its scope oh yes stop listening to this podcast now all right now we can start singing row 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 your boat gently down the stream merrily 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 life is but a dream that's all I kept thinking when ah. the reveal started here that these people are dreaming this perfect society. They are on a spaceship on a very long voyage and they are in stasis and being fed this story. But they're not blue cat people. <laughs> they're also not cops in the 70s uh, like Life on Mars. Have you ever watched the TV show Life on Mars? No, that's the story of life on Mars is a group of people in stasis in a spaceship have a dream that they are cops in the 70s. It is brilliant writing. Oh, no, I don't know that one. There are two versions of it. There's a British version and an American version. I recommend it highly. (laughs) Which is better, may I ask? Uh, The British one. The British one is better. Okay. So one of the things that's fascinating about Prospera, which is really, really typical of utopias, is that the art 
is terrible, right? And we go to like a piano recital and, you know, it's like, I can't remember exactly how it's described, but it's technically perfect and emotionally empty. And that's the case for all of the art. Because it's the AI that's creating it. Exactly. And there's a lot going on with AI in this novel too, right? Certainly a modern story. And so considering that all of the art is AI generated, and I really, really, really loved this sort of discussion of what do we get? The first, is it the first third or the first two thirds of the book that we're living in? We're not 100% sure if we're in a dream or not. It's a good chunk. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say the first third is some, it, they set up the the world and, and there's hints of something crazy going on. Then the second third is where we go, there's something crazy going on. There's something wrong with this world. But even during that second third, because Proctor is working with rebels in the system who are the arrivalists and they're like living outside of the system and trying to fight from within. That's standard dystopian fare, right? That's like, that's Hunger Games. That's all of these classic dystopias. And we know that Proctor, he has a very, very bad secret. He dreams. No one is supposed to dream in this world. And that makes me think of, you know, there's been a lot of recent work on the importance of dreaming. And so, you know, from the science community, we have this notion that our REM sleep is highly connected to how long our cognitive function is good. People with Alzheimer's have like a history of, of less REM sleep throughout their lives. And so the sort of importance of dreams scientifically, but then there's also philosophically, what do dreams do for us? I'm going to admit, I mostly dream of email. Do you really? Probably a really, really... It's probably a sign of some sort of... Meetings. Pam is having meetings <laughs> in her dreams. Impending psychosis. Pam, that's unique. Most people don't dream about cell phones or email or anything like that. That is a unique... And I dream I'm reading. I also dream that I'm reading a lot of the time, like with a book in front of me. How interesting. Mm -hmm. huh. yeah. That, that, that truly is interesting because I don't think that that's very common. I'm a person who doesn't remember any dreams, but I do track my sleep. So I use a sleep app to track, and you can see how deeply you go to sleep and whether you hit deep phases or not. And if you, you know, you can track how you feel and all that other stuff. There's studies on sleep. We know that the brain kind of resets itself and heals itself and all sorts of stuff. And it heals the body through sleep. But we really, you know, we struggle with maybe knowing why. Mm -hmm. There's so many philosophical questions in this book. And the focus of this book is on story, storytelling, and how we communicate these stories and how dreams are these stories that your brain conjures up for you. And some of us, it's about email, apparently. Sorry, that's okay, such an Pam. embarrassing admission. <laughs> <laughs> Pam's going to meetings even in her dreams. <laughs> you are Fantastic. you are a very cognizant thinking person. 
I believe in communication. But okay. So of course, as an English professor, I was very, very delighted with the power of story that's in this. Because of course, that's one of my favorite topics to talk to students about. And there's this moment where Proctor and his wife are talking about what about the power? What is it about Jane Austen? Now, that's not the author I would have picked, but a perfectly good author. What is it about Jane Austen that makes you actually like forget where you are when you're reading a book? And I'm going to read a quote. Austen's novel feels alive because it is alive, just as the world that you and I profess to live in is alive. It's made by a mind, not a machine. And that mind is what gives it the sense of deep order and purpose. You may not see it, but you can sense its presence. And that's what makes life not merely endurable, but also worth living. And this is the kind of thought that tons and tons of writers write about. Faulkner's the one that I always think about. But but this idea of the power of story. And as we find out that like spoiler alert, we're living on a dying world. How do we escape it? How do we imagine a life elsewhere? You have to put people, colonists, on a spaceship and you have to put them into stasis for hundreds of years. And if you don't give them dreams, they're going to go crazy. And if the dreams are generated by AI, they won't be good enough to keep human minds alive. You need to have a designer to keep people sane. That's the power of literature. That was a fun revelation when it came up. And it certainly made this, not I, I, unique is not the proper word. It, 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 it transitions so well through that, that part. I thought it was really well thought out. Like, ah, yeah, the computer can't quite make it right. We need humans. Humans still have a, a place in an AI world because they bring imagination in a whole different level. A central place. Yeah. Rand Drescher is so happy that you said that <laughs> because she wants the actors to be a part of making stories and the AI just can't do it the same way that humanity does. The themes of this are so prescient to what we are doing right now in 2023 reading this during the actors and writers strike in Hollywood, it's like perfect timing. Absolutely. I recommend this book to everybody that got through the spoiler horn. Which brings us to the fact that the last, I don't know, six hours of this 20 hour book or presumably 200 pages is just chock full of like topical discussions. So, you know, one of them is, and I'm really, really curious what you guys think so you find you know, two thirds of the way through the book that you've just basically been reading about people who are whose bodies are actually in like deep stasis tanks. <laughs> so no, all of the action that you've read about just was happening in a dream world. How does that make you feel? For hundreds of years. For hundreds of years. Exactly. I love the idea. I love the idea that maybe all of our stories are just illusions maybe all of our stories are just dreams maybe i can put together an amazing road trip that is just my imagination and my memory of it is nothing but a bunch of neurons at this point could those neurons have been 
implanted in some technological way, could all of human existence be just a shadow of, of reality? Sort of matrixes. Yes, this is very matrixy. As I'm reading this, this is exactly what I'm, I'm running into. That reality, basically the Elon Musk story, that we could be living in an artificial uh, simulation. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the zeitgeist of vacation, the zeitgeist of experiences, people want to be hands-on. It's not enough to um, watch it, which is wonderful. It's about kind of doing. And the idea of whether doing actually has to be physical or whether you can just do it all in your mind. Anyway, that's where it gets kind of, you know, really out there. And um, I mean, th that's why this is a special book. That's the story of Total Recall, right? Is is he goes to the, Correct. the special uh, facility and gets implanted with the idea of this vacation. Instead of going to Hawaii, you get implanted with the memory. We are so close to that technology. And I, I ask my students about that all the time. Could you imagine just having the memory of that fantastic vacation? Is that the same five years later, 10 years later? Well, imagine what that could do to productivity and creativity and stuff like that. If at night you could go away and experience, um, I don't know, two-week vacation, mm -hmm. doing something unique, my gut would say that we would quickly get used to that and it still never would be enough. But at least theoretically, the weekend comes and you're whisked off to fantasy island which is basically an ai experience mr rourke's there ready to greet you my philosophical mind starts thinking what if that's exactly what happens what if that's exactly what dreams are what if that's what we are doing actively already and and, and to get religious about this i mean isn't this as as i am a, a non-buddhist hindu but anyway, reincarnation and, and stuff like that, is that what it is? Is it the reset, uh, an AI experience? And we didn't know that. Is heaven to the West an AI experience? And I have thought that thought before. I have thought about you know, the, the good place, the TV yes. show, the good place where they have this experience that this is the afterlife. Could that be uh, a technological feat instead of a philosophical one that's uh i, I love this stuff so much <laughs> well and i also really like the metafictional piece of it right so here we are reading a book we know we're reading a book it's fiction but then we're like oh, oh my gosh it's fiction inside of the fiction something so delightful about that and the idea that it's delightful to me because we do get so invested in these fictional characters that it matters whether they're awake or asleep. They don't even exist, right? And that's, I think, the power of fiction. And they're so well-written. These characters are so well-written on a level that I imagine these people. I know these people after this very long journey of this very long book. Even though we have multiple versions of people, 
they still function really well across multiple versions. That's an especially important achievement for Justin Cronin here. I agree. I also want to talk about kids. I want to talk about the perspective of the child and especially, worst spoiler of all time, the loss of a four-year-old child, which, you know, we're all parents, like, just the thought of that is so hard to even process that anyone loses a small child. It's just impossible. But guys, it's super, super common in this literature, right? In the dystopian and apocalyptic literature, to have a main character who has the loss of a child and sometimes even the repression of the loss of a child, that's a sci-fi trope. What do you think that, why is that such a powerful trope? Well, much like uh, in fairy tales, the the mother passes away. Mm-hmm. It, it creates the trauma that allows the story to move forward. It creates the 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 loss um, that you you could sort of imagine. I I think it's it's just kind of a springboard, and not I'm not to dismiss it because. I mean, I could, I can only imagine what it would be like to be a parent and have to bury a child. Um, but anyway, I, I, I just can't. I just think it, it becomes like, like I said, a springboard, something to move, move the story forward, and to create the morning. The, the, the idea of if you could lose that memory, mm-hmm. if that could, if it didn't happen. As parents, we experienced that moment where we fell in love with these children the moment that we met them. It is a magical moment, and and I would do anything for my kids. And the idea of losing a child, especially at a young age like this, and the trauma that that leads to this whole this whole story is is pivoting on that trauma in such a beautiful way where the character takes that that loss and extends it not just to her but to everybody everybody has this feeling the of, of the i can't have children children have to be cared for there's there's so much to this story and i think there's also this sort of anxiety that we have right now a lot of us have that just not paying enough attention to the future so as the climate crisis comes closer and closer and closer and we still haven't got all our ducks in a row to handle it sometimes it's really hard to imagine you know those that are going to be affected but that's what a child is a child is the future. That individual loss is actually more powerful to us cognitively than if you said 100,000 children died. We'd be like, oh my God, horrible. Right. But we wouldn't feel it the same way as this one child that we know who dies. And so we've got pathos, logos, and ethos. And <laughs> this is the pathos. This is the emotional impact of the death that represents the death of millions. And and the crazy part is, is there's no way of ever really knowing or controlling all the variables for the future. So at some point you have to come, I mean, a a maturity is to recognize there are challenges out there, but also recognizing even if those challenges were solved, 
there would be additional challenges. And there's always a story, right? Sort of living in sort of a well, there's you, you to be comfortable living in the chaos of not being able to control. And, and- Control becomes a big part of the story too, where where the one character decides that he is going to keep everybody in stasis because he decides that the planet that they're going to is not habitable, and so he makes this choice for the society. It's Finland, Steve. It's Finland. <laughs> it's the country for me. Well, <laughs> it, that's that's what they said. It's yeah, it's Finland. There's a sliver of a of, you know, there's a North Pole or South Pole and the sliver of the land, what would it be like? It's really cold, and it's like Finland. <laughs> well, good luck. So near to Russia, so far <laughs> from Japan. Sorry, that's the Finland song. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple other big topics that come up near the end are the question of who funds space exploration. And so in this world, we're in like the mid-22nd century Uh, NASA doesn't exist anymore. And I'm kind of curious what you guys think about, like how much of space exploration will be funded by versus by tech billionaires? This this seemed plausible to me, but what did you guys think? My idea that has changed so much in the last few years because, because we have lived through the billionaires trying to fund things and, and, I don't know that that's the future of of space travel. I, I, I'm not following. You said billionaires are not going to be the the future of space travel. I don't think that they no. are being successful in the way that NASA and government sort of companies and uh, not companies, government entities were in the past. Well, for a long time, the governments gave up. I mean, NASA Challenger program doesn't exist mm-hmm. so my, my point is is that I, my, I would anticipate a time when price goes down um that the idea is to get to space and whether there's an elevator that takes you from surface to space or whatever it is the, the problem is getting to space it's not the exploration at that point mm-hmm. um once you're out there it's a dead void there's going to be individuals who are going to choose to go and wildcat for exotic ores or gold or whatever that thing is. It's going to be individuals, not any different than the prospectors who uh, prospect um, who you know <laughs> wound up in San Francisco and Levi's, you know, looking for gold. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to go out there going, oh, there's something we can find. And they're going to live this harsh, awful reality until, you know, it becomes feasible to create, you know, a company or something like that, a group that's going to do it. There may be some uh, groups funding it, but, um, yeah, uh, I, I, don't, I can't anticipate that um, for many families, they're going to want to choose that. It's going to be a special person special group that's going to choose choose to do that i I think you're probably right it's it's the leaving earth part that is bothering the corporations right now once we get off of the planet the the gravity prison that we live in then we've got a whole nother story well that was william shatner's response um when he went to space and he came back and he said what did i see 
he didn't see Star Trek as Captain Kirk. He saw his he saw it as a human looking out in the dead space of space and going, oh my God, this is the one place we have that there's life. That's that's I mean, life has that would support us. Mm-hmm. Certainly a very interesting um, perspective. Yeah, uh, realization. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Well, and there's like a lot of sci-fi tropes when we get into the end of the novel, when they get to the other planet, you actually have, you know, several things happening. First of all, you have 80,000 colonists and most of them are farmers. For every agricultural engineer, Proctor tells us, you need 100 farmers. So they've actually chosen their population in that way. But then when they get to the planet, they see evidence of a former civilization. Dun, dun, dun. Right? But it looks like this civilization has nuked itself and leading to nuclear winter, which is why the best part of the planet looks like Finland. By the way, I'm a fan of Finland, but whatever. <laughs> so I like the Scandinavian countries. It's but the anyway. Country for me. Um so that idea, right, this this kind of feeds into like the Fermi paradox, this notion like, why haven't we met aliens? Is it because when we get to a certain point of technology, we destroy ourselves? It's a great question. I hate that question. I think we have to get past it. I hate that question so much because <laughs> it's probably accurate. There's probably a very, very, very short amount of time that, that civilization exists and then it does not exist for whatever reason. Well, think, <laughs> think how long humans have been the dominant species on the earth. You realize, think how long you've been here. You are just a dot. If you're even a dot. Right. You're on a, a micron of a dot. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly humbling when you're young, you think you have forever. Your children think that they have forever. But, you know, you're middle-aged and you go, oh, my goodness, my parents are dying. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, maybe we get lucky and we get 200. I don't yeah. care if it's 200. It's still so short right? on the blip of, of time. This idea that you're Charlton Heston, you got your horse and your woman, you're very sweaty, and all of a sudden, you run into the Statue of Liberty. That's it's a very similar kind of realization. They they blew it up. They destroyed it all. <laughs> Except that I would say that the very fact that our colonist ship, led by Proctor Bennett, um, directed by Proctor Bennett, actually sees the evidence, that actually suggests again the power of story, right? That if we understand the Fermi paradox, maybe that's a way we get out of it. We actually understand how to avoid our fate by seeing it in advance. And that's the power of science fiction, right? That's why I think it's just as important to study science fiction as it is to study science. Because when we play out those thought experiments that the three of us enjoy so much, that's an actually really important ethical insight into the kinds of technological work that other people in the society are doing. So I think there's a lot of hope and optimism in seeing this destroyed planet. Not that we have to follow the same path, but that we could choose a different path. We reviewed uh, Oppenheimer 
earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when you watch Oppenheimer, what you recognize very quickly is as smart as you think you are, as clever as you think you are, there are people just on a whole special level. And while we can play around in science fiction and write and, and stuff like that, what we're doing is we're just kind of running a model you know, in many ways. We're saying, okay, what if this all happened? And that allows the everyday person to experience that what if. Like I said, when I'm watching Oppenheimer, I just recognize immediately there's a group of people just on a different level of creativity and of knowledge. And the beauty is they are very comfortable recognizing their limitations too when they get to that level. In addition, I, I, they're very human. Is there an ending to this story? Are there too many endings to this story, Pam? You know I love endings. The story had too many endings. Okay. The New York Times review with the Instagram feed didn't love the book, but loved the ending. And I was like, I'm the opposite. So I, so we get to what I felt was a super good end. And then there were six more endings. And I was like, really? You got to know when to stop. Now, I personally would love a book too. I would love to see the colonists on the planet. I mean, I would love to see that part. Like that's a story I totally enjoy, right? However, I did feel like all of these endings, whew, it went too far. What did you guys think? Well, you know, Peter Jackson loves this because he's he, <laughs> when he was directed the uh, Lord of the Rings, he was going, yeah, there's just not enough endings here. We need more endings. <laughs> I, I really want to go into the Kevin Smith version of that, but it is it is profane. <laughs> I I agree with you. There was way too much story to this story. There there's there's some great things that happen, and there should be a strong ending. We get Proctor deciding red pill or blue pill. He's deciding to go back into the simulation, to go back into the ship and travel back to Earth, essentially, theoretically, hundreds of years of more time in this perfect utopia. And, and I love that, that we finally get a character that chooses Thanks. that instead of the reality. And going back to The Matrix, the movie, that was also the choice of the guy that was the, I don't know, dissenter. He goes, I just want to eat a steak and really taste what is steak taste like just don't tell me it's it's false right so there is a whole group of people and you know imagine think of a group of people who won't right wake up from the reality they've created i mean certainly making a statement there too yeah we have plenty of people that live in a reality that that some of us disagree with that they live in this life and they think these thoughts these things are true to them is that okay maybe it is well it, it's okay if they're not impacting others right there you go well and proctor is impacting others now i also really like the revelation that proctor was the one who created two different classes right so the colonists there are eighty thousand people on this ship and so some of them were the tech billionaire investors and they knew that they were going to have like the sweet life but the colonists were told that they would have the sweet life and then they end up in the service class and they end up not having the same dream experience. We find out at the end, Proctor's the one who made that call and he did it 
on a philosophical basis that comes right out of utopian studies, which is that people need something to strive toward. Once you meet utopia, you have nothing left to, to work on. And so that I thought was interesting. Go back to mythology. The Greek gods warred against each other. So if, if you're not striving for something, you may make something to strive for. Is, is that the human condition? Is that the condition oh. of living beings? You get in your own way sometimes. Wow. Well, e even today, I mean, think about how wonderful so many things in your life are. Yet there's a whole group of people who are not satisfied. What's creating that? Is that part of the human condition or is that, you know, how information is coming to you? Is that how the United States has created its culture versus an area that maybe have maybe has less, but they're more satisfied? I mean, there's there's so many fun places you can take this. And I just want to welcome you to the hookah bar. Oh yeah, the philosophy is deep here. I I enjoy how much philosophy this author was able to thread into this story and the thinking and the ideas and the what ifs of this story are phenomenal. Absolutely agree. And you guys, this week for some reason, I read a really old book from 1961, Solaris by Stanislaw Lem, which has been made into two different movies and it actually touched on so many of the same philosophical questions, but from 70 years ago. And it was pretty interesting to read these books. It was far less satisfying than, than The Ferryman, but it had some of those same questions. So these are kind of existential questions that people like to think about in this genre. So Chip, what do you think? Do you think that this is a book that you would suggest to our listeners? Oh, yeah. This is a really good, this is a good book. If you like science fiction, you know, it's a little long in the sense that you're going to kind of go through it. But, you know, I, I, I don't think people should be intimidated by the length of it. I think that once you get started with it, you're going to uh, fall into it and kind of start enjoying it. I think that if you did an audible, like what's available here, um, you've got, it's, it's, it's very easy to listen to, follow along and uh, enjoy. I, I, I think this is a good pick. What do you think, Pam? I'm not only going to suggest it, I'm going to require it. So yes, <laughs> I'm all in for this. <laughs> she, I get she, to is, professor. <laughs> she is the one dreaming at this point, and um, you will you will follow her dream. <laughs> I'm the design of my classroom. <laughs> Just call me Director Bador. <laughs> There's so many moments in this story where if you stopped reading, you would be in a satisfied reading experience. There's so many stories going on. But yes, the length of it is the only caveat that I give, just like we said, for the Indiana Jones movie and for the Mission Impossible movie. Both just a little bit long, but great experiences all the way through. Pam, thanks again for coming in and being a part of our great book club. I appreciate all of your thinking and all of your ways of uh, designing your utopia of a class syllabus. And maybe The Ferryman by Justin Cronin will be your student's favorite. And thank you for bringing me this book. This was so much fun.
grow with it. Brings it to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things going on in the world, and some of them you need to be really aware of. I, I don't know if you caught the story this week where when you do your taxes and have them electronically filed, like the federal government wants them to, whether you're using a service online like TurboTax or HR Block or so, or whether you're going to a tax preparer and having them electronically file for you, that your information is being shared with Google and with Facebook. And how does that happen? How do you pay for a service and have two services that should not be related to your filing somehow have access to your data after you, one, paid for the service. You paid for your tax preparing service. Two, the government prefers you to file electronically. This, this seems to be such a violation of your personal rights. And while we don't have a right, uh, like a bill of rights for our online selves, it, it's apparent that we do because we're not getting it. This information should never have been shared through th these these other groups. Yeah, I think this is a story that is going to expand and we're going to see more of of the behind the scenes of how this happened. It, there's there's something going on here that is surprising at least. It has the ability to be sinister. Yeah. And once once again, this was this was asked. Imagine if you receive everything you receive was so tailored put together for you on information that never should have been shared. You're, you you should expect some uh, level of privacy. By the way, banks know your information anyway. In addition to that, you're paying for that right. Think of the majority of Americans out there. The majority of Americans should never have to file any taxes at all. The government knows what you got paid. You're a W-2 employee. Right. The, the people who should be doing their taxes are, are self-employed people who they don't have those types of recordings done for them. They have to self-report. But for the rank-and-file human, especially American, those taxes are already taken. You're getting back a few hundred dollars. You pay a few hundred dollars. They pretty much know where you should be. Right. Certainly, certainly a, a fascinating story and something that you should be upset about. So, Steve... You know, that was a very stressful moment. What we need is something that's escapist and fun. So you're going to tell me, how did you enjoy voter travel <laughs> 2023? Welcome to Too Much Scrolling. Chip brings the, the we need to be careful about this. And I bring the, you know what I did, Chip? I got in the car and drove for six days, five nights by myself, my first ever solo vacation, I went all the way out to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and attended MST3Con, the MST3K convention that brought together all of the silliness of Mystery Science Theater that I love. This was held at Blobfest, the celebration of the movie The Blob from 1958 in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. But if you're not familiar with Phoenixville, uh, Pennsylvania, is I spent a lot of summers up there. It's not too far from Valley Forge. Hey, that's American history. Yep. Not too far from Philadelphia. 
Yeah. So you are in a, um, a beautiful part of America. And, and I got to travel all the way from Chicago, all the way across the country and saw all the wonderful things in between as well and got there, uh, and had so much fun with all of our new friends, all of our new listeners, a big shout out to Paul, Heidi, Jackson, Jen, Jamie, John, and Marjorie. We had so much fun. We were being so silly. And a lot of the conversation was about that was about the coming together, the community building that is finding something you love and finding a group of people to communicate with so did they perform um a mystery science theater presentation to the blob no no they did not riff the blob that's not what we did this was kind of a tag on after blob fest and it was a full day of just mystery science theater it was a movie marathon we watched three mystery science theater movies together there were three theaters that were all uh, beaming the same movie together uh and we sat and laughed and and made our own fun with the crew of mystery science theater joel hodgson the creator of mystery science theater was there along with jonah ray the current host and emily marsh the other current host since there are two current hosts of mystery science theater and just a bunch of silly fun people enjoying each other's company on a on a really deep level wonderful steve that was not the only thing you did on this trip <laughs> you close. um you took a trip uh that Brought you back to a lot of memories. Yeah, this was a nostalgia trip. This became kind of a PBS-based nostalgia trip for me. I went all over Pennsylvania where Mr. Rogers lived and created all of his television life. And I went to every Mr. Rogers thing, every museum and every... I even stopped off at his childhood home just to pay homage to Mr. Rogers. So you were in Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh and Latrobe, Pennsylvania, the the home of the invention of the the educational philosophy of Mr. Rogers and how his impact has really changed who I am and changed who I am as a teacher thinking through the care and the wonder of childhood that he brought. But what did you learn about visiting the set? The set is special. The, I'm just smiling from ear to ear right now, just thinking about being there on the set of Mr. Rogers, seeing the tree, seeing the hand-painted pieces. Uh, the trolley is at the Fred Rogers Institute in Latrobe, and seeing up close and personal the impact that that hand-painting had on my childhood was was special were the uh, sets large no everything's a lot smaller than you think it is television makes everything look a lot bigger see when you're on the set did you have anything that that talked a little bit about johnny costa the the musician who played the piano you know i i they did not pay as much homage to the music piece that is the mr rogers neighborhood johnny costa was a jazz musician who came in, who was asked to be a part of this children's program. And he was like, I don't want to do children's music. And Fred Rogers told him, I don't want to make children's music either. I want you to make 
good music. I want you to make intense music. I want you to make music that gives emotion just like your music. I don't want to dumb anything down for children. There wasn't as much emphasis on music in the in this particular piece at the Fred Rogers Institute in Latrobe or at the Heinz Museum in Pittsburgh. It was focused more on the production of the television program itself, but there's there's a lot of music in there. Interesting. And because music was such a big part of it. Steve, that is not the only PBS host you got to go. On the way back, you stopped in Muncie, Indiana. Yes, I accidentally found Bob Ross's studio where he recorded the joy of painting. And I saw firsthand the tiny little studio. And I looked at it, you know, this is early 80s. I looked at it and went, this is what I was doing in the early 80s with video. I was making little tiny videos at the time, just like Bob Ross. The inspiration of so many people, the artistry, the creativity, and the joy that Bob Ross brought is on display in Muncie, Indiana at Ball State University. And and our children, you know, Gen Z spent a lot of time watching Bob Ross because, you know, it's great background. Um, it's, it's so relaxing. And Bob Ross has such a great delivery and such a, a, a great spirit to his delivery. So much like Fred Rogers, so much that idea of calm and making things slow down and thinking through what you need to do. Steve, you need to visit Julia Child's uh, studio, and you, you've hit the trifecta right there. I would love to. I have been in the basement of WTTW Studios, and I did see a food show being recorded by Ming Tsai, who had a program called East Meets West. That's as close as I've gotten to Julia Child. My next trip, my next trip, I will go examine uh, some more PBS <laughs> frequently frequently thought of as my my childhood. Well, Steve, you had to get your dancing machine going on when you were coming back to the area. You stopped in Gary, Indiana to do a little um, ABC. Accidentally. That, that's the funnest part about this trip was I accidentally wound up in Gary, Indiana and saw the childhood home of Michael Jackson. And we've talked a lot, maybe not on the show, but we've talked a lot about how we separate the artist from the art. I am a fan of Michael Jackson's art and I see the honor of going to see his home as something special, even though I do not support his personal choices outside of his art. Sure. And this is before that Michael Jackson became the Michael Jackson. We knew this is when he was a child. He was part of the Jackson five mm -hmm. or the Jacksons, however you want to describe it. Uh, and they, you know, he lived at home with his father, you know, making it happen, Steve, right. making it happen under a little bit of distress. And, and I'm still a huge fan of Janet Jackson. So I can, I can still be uh, a Janet Jackson fan. Well, your, your final visits were to some childhood places, Steve. Tell us a little bit about that. Because I was storytelling through social media on this trip, I thought that a great way to end the story would be to end at my childhood home. So that's exactly what I did. I took a little bit of a detour and went past and took pictures of my childhood home where my story started. And I think that that's a great way to think about how 
all of this has come to be and the storytelling of that adventure uh i hope everybody enjoyed but did the new owners of that home uh have a problem with you stapling up a plaque commemorating the too much scrolling uh childhood home <laughs> happy, of Steve 10 years. happy 10 years <laughs> too much scrolling celebrating our 10th year a plaque a plaque on both of your houses <laughs> and the 17th best to Chicago podcast. Too much scrolling. <laughs> number one podcast. <laughs> I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve, and bring more good books. Oh, my gosh. What, what a great book. Big thanks to Pam for coming in for our monthly book club. We'll see her again next month, and we'll come back next week with another great book. We would love to hear from you. Have you read along with us? Have you read The Ferryman? Uh, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on threads and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm temporary pirate Chip Hessenfall. We'll see you in the future. What's a, what's a pirate's favorite letter, Steve? C. Well, you'd be thinking that, but it'd be the R. <laughs> <laughs>